Well, good morning, everybody. Today, we're going to be diving into the stories uh, and the subsequent lessons that follow from, if, if there are, in fact, lessons for us in application, uh, in Genesis 38 and 39. The first story, though, that we're going to encounter uh, is going to really challenge our ideals of morality. It's going to challenge our ideals of God's view of things, his judgment, those, those matters, um, and it's going to deal with deception and judgment and those kinds of ideas. Second story, though, is going to provoke questions of fairness uh, as we understand it in God's will. So fairness is a big deal, um, especially as you, you raise kids. They think everything should be fair, and life isn't. So <laughs> it's just the way it is, right? And so there's a lot to cover with all of this. But Here's the kind of the groundwork. I want to kind of set the stage on this. There are many times, and, and I hope that you can, um, I hope that you will commit to what I'm about to, um, to ask you to, and that is commit to looking for legitimate answers to questions and abstain from settling from simple answers that make your conscience feel good. Okay, what I mean by that is that there are many times when we read the Bible and there's challenges in the Bible and we want to know what the answer is or why this weirdness exists in the Bible and we give ourselves an answer that make us feel good. We feel warm and fuzzy with our answer. We feel proud of ourselves because we've settled our own insecurities and yet the world is going to ask you 50,000 more questions pushing way harder than you'll push yourself. So I'm, ch I'm challenging you to not just settle for the answers that you give yourself to make you feel better. I'm asking you to really be a student of the Bible, to push deeply into it, resting in this truth. God is good. God has reasons for why God does things. Sometimes he doesn't tell you. <laughs> oh, that sucks, right? Sometimes he doesn't tell you, but he has reasons for what he does. And sometimes the answers are far more nuanced and far more complicated than we think. So we're going to start with Genesis 38 because there's a lot to cover today. Genesis 38, and we're going to deal with morality. We're going to deal with God's will. We're going to deal with uh, deception. So in Genesis 38, it presents us with a fascinating, unconventional, and very Jerry Springer-esque narrative, Okay. Um, and this all within you know, the crazier stories of the Bible, right? Or specifically the book of Genesis. In this chapter, we're going to shift our focus away from Joseph that Jacob brought us into yesterday or last week uh, as the central character. And we're going to delve into the weird story of Judah, one of Jacob's brothers or one of Joseph's brothers. The chapter resolves around Judah's interaction with a woman named Tamar that happens to be his daughter-in-law. So after Tamar's husband passes away, uh, and I'm going to get into the nitty-gritty of this here in just a second, but after Tamar's husband passes away, she's actually left without a child, and uh, this will prevent her from continuing on his lineage. And so according to cultural customs of the time, uh, this particular kind of leveret marriage, uh, it was Judah's responsibility, the father's responsibility, to provide her with another husband from his family. So one of the brothers has a responsibility to do the job. 
Um, and the way the child would come about is that the child would be representative of the original uh, father, okay? So it would, it would carry on that name. However, uh, Judah delays fulfilling this duty, which leads Tamar to kind of take this situation into her own hands. So let's just get with the nitty-gritty here real quick. In, in Genesis chapter 38, starting at verse 1 and going through verse 11, we actually read what happens. So Judah finds him a wife, right? It's a great situation. He ends up having kids. He has three boys. At least that's the three that are listed here, right? Three boys that are listed here. And the first son, it's interesting, it says Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, Now, really listen to this, and maybe even highlight it in your Bibles. This will help you start to wrestle with challenging questions and not to give yourself an answer that satisfies you. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so God killed him. So the Lord put him to death. That's what the Bible says. The Lord put him to death. Now, what was Ur's wickedness? Well, I don't know. But apparently it was so appalling that God said, this one has to die. So then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife. This is verse 8. Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Now, I just want to point out the fact that culturally, everyone in this room would go, that sounds bad enough to kill somebody. This is weird, right? But this is not bad. This is just cultural, okay? This is really hard when we start to process everything that's in the Bible because a lot of the morality found in the Bible we would deem as absolutely evil and absolutely wrong, and it's not. And God never denounces it. God, as a matter of fact, even blesses it in times. So this is really hard for us to understand. Verse 9, but Onan knew that the child would not be his. Sorry. Sorry to the children in the room. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. Now, why did he do that? Maybe he looked at it and said, my brother was an idiot, and I don't want anybody following in that line. The problem was, this was a grievous sin in God's mind. So what what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So guess what happened? God killed him. The Lord put him to death. Now, You're sitting here thinking what I'm thinking, which is, dang, this is challenging, right? This is some super complicated stuff here. Verse 11, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah or Shelah or whatever grows up, for uh, for he thought, this is Judah's thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. There's the confidence of a dad right? (laughs) My sons are crap. Maybe he's another one, right? So he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. So the chapter revolves around Judah's interactions with his daughter-in-law Tamar. And after Tamar's husband passes away, after Tamar's husband is killed by the Lord, she is left without a child in his lineage. And so the cultural customs kick in and they have to do this. Remember God's judgment in these moments. One is because of some wicked that we don't have listed. The other is because the guy doesn't want to provide a a son in line or a child in line with his brother's line. However, Judah delays fulfilling the duty with the last son and we'll get to that. 
So Tamar disguises herself. That's how this weird story goes on. Tamar disguises herself to, according to the scripture, what Judah, what appears to Judah as a prostitute, okay? Now, there is nothing that actually indicates what Tamar's agenda was. Nothing indicates this. However, she loses her widow clothing and puts on this shawl, puts on this covering, and this may be a cultural component. This is one of those things where you have to read culture into the text. So what is Tamar's objective? I don't know. It's not expressly stated. But after Tamar's husband passes, she's left without this child. So she disguises herself as a prostitute, or what appears to be, and entices Judah, who unknowingly, remember Judah is her father-in-law, who unknowingly engages in a relationship with her. Now, he doesn't unknowingly engage in the relationship. He unknowingly engages with her. His wife has died, and he seeks out a prostitute on this traveling journey, and he impregnates his daughter-in-law. Now, here's where you can't settle with with little cheap answers that make your conscience feel good. God killed a son for unknown reasons. He also killed another son because that son didn't do what he was supposed to do. Judah sleeps with a prostitute, and he's fine. What in the flip are we doing here? Are, are, do you have the same thought that I have here? Like, am I, am I weird? Because this is just outright crazy. And here's what we do. We love these answers. And I've given this answer for so many other things, but this is not one where it fits. We go, well, there's things in the Bible that are prescriptive and things in the Bible that are descriptive. What we're dealing with here is why does God do one thing and then completely not do it in another situation? You can't just look at this and say, well, it's descriptive and not prescriptive. We're talking about God. Why does God not just drop the hammer? Do you know this is why the skeptical world reads the Bible and goes, what the heck are you doing? What God do you believe in? You're going to have to wrestle with the real stuff of the Bible at some point. You're going to have to wrestle with it. You're going to have to look at these passages and go, yep, this stuff's downright weird. Okay? It's downright weird. Okay? So let's continue on. I'm not giving you any answers. So, so Tamar disguises I know, I heard that. Ugh. Anyway, Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute, entices Judah, who sleeps with her. Later, when Tamar is found to be pregnant, now this is Judah, didn't know who Tamar was, impregnates her, finds out later that Tamar is pregnant, and what does Judah do? In his self-righteousness, he goes, kill her. What is wrong with these people? <laughs> I really, this, there is no Jerry Springer episode ever that has been this weird, right? Okay, so, so he says, kill her. She, he wants, she should die, okay? So orders her execution, and it's not just a small thing. It's not take her out and stone her as if that was bad enough. Burn this woman alive, okay? This is what he wants to do. Yet, Tamar reveals her clever ploy, by presenting the items that Judah had given her as a pledge, proving his involvement. Moral of the story, don't give a pledge. No, that's not the moral of the story, okay? <laughs> anyway, so he gives a pledge to this woman, and then she finally comes back and goes, you're, you're the guy. So the narrative sheds light on these weird, complex situations. So again, if you're not familiar with the story, 
He says, how much to sleep with you? And Tamar says, Tamar says what, what are you offering? And he says, I'll give you a goat. I, no question. Anyway, I'll give you a goat. This is just, I don't know. I love the Bible. I really do. Right? Give me a goat. How do I know you're good for a goat? How do I know you're good for a goat? Well, I'll give you a pledge. So she takes the pledge. Then when she's found pregnant and everybody's like, let's, let's kill this woman, she goes, uh, the guy who got me pregnant uh, belongs to these things and these things belong to him. And then all of a sudden, this actually turns out to be her father-in-law. Her father-in-law expresses something very fascinating. Um, he says, I'm finding my place, I'm sorry. Meanwhile, Judah sent a young goat by his friend to the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But when he did not find her, he asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute? This is what Judah thought. They said there never has been a shrine prostitute here. About three months later, skipping down to verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. And she, she said, and she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Don't you love that? Verse 26, Judah recognized them and said, here's his word. She is more righteous than I. You're not righteous, bud. Right? She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. This is Judah doesn't do this again. Okay, so here's, here's the thing. The narrative seems to shed light on the complexities of family dynamics, cultural norms, which are really strange, uh, the lengths to which individuals would go in this culture to secure their place inside of society or within a certain family. It's a story, though, that challenges our understanding of morality, but it should challenge our understanding of God's judgment because we don't understand why he acts in some places and doesn't in others. And again, we give ourselves simple answers, enough to ease our conscience. Well, God had a plan for Judah. Wonderful. Wonderful. God also had a plan for Tamar, and she has to go through this weird exchange that's going on here. Why does God kill these two boys but let Judah live? Or why is he okay with the deception that is done by Tamar in this situation? I just want a show of hands. Do these things make you scratch your head? Show of hands. They should. They should. Number one, it should lead us to say, I don't live in this culture and I don't understand what's happening. And we should then seek to understand it. It should also make us not take the criticisms, hear my weird way of saying this, it should make us not take the criticisms of the world, of the people who disagree with the Bible or disagree with God, lightly. We should not take those criticisms lightly. We should hear them out. If you shut somebody's criticism down just because you think it's not worth your time or just because you've given yourself this little storybook answer or this little Sunday school answer that makes you feel warm and fuzzy, it doesn't mean they move an inch towards following God. They still think you're crazy for believing what you believe. And they want to know answers. And guess what? Churches and higher education seminaries and all of this, they provide the worst answers 
Because what they do is they just give you something that appeases your conscience. But this is hard stuff. And it's stuff that we have to wrestle with. It, it means we have to wrestle with God is just and God can do what he wants. Is that a satisfiable answer to most of you? Sometimes, sometimes not, right? You know how much it works when my daughters are doing something and they're like, Daddy, why do we have to do this? And my answer is because I said so. Exactly. You all know it. Does that settle their little hearts? Heck no, it doesn't settle their hearts. And yet here's what we've done with God. Well, God said it, so it better settle your heart. It doesn't. It doesn't. The world scratches their head. So I've made you all uncomfortable. This is really important and part of my goal today, right? But here, here is also a, a bit of a side note before we, we work through this. Genesis 38 is not typically included in children's Bible stories. <laughs> um, no crap, right? right? It's, it's not in there for what? For what reason? Right? There's a lot of mature themes and a lot of mature content. And it's a story you can't wrap up or tie up with a nice little bow. Is it? Right? We tell our kids about David and Goliath all the time, and then we spin the stupid story in the most absurd way and tell everybody to look out for their giants in their life, and they can defeat their giants, which is all out of context and nonsense, but we love it because the bow is nice. But what we don't love about stories like this is we go, what is God doing? So we leave it out. But there's other reasons why we leave these out. And I was actually challenged to leave some of this out today. So I'm going to get to the point of why I'm leaving you feeling uncomfortable. And that is that if you told this story to your children, you would be inviting a ton of questions that you might not be prepared to answer, right? In the American church, I'm sharing this among adults and I'm inviting questions that I might not be prepared to answer because we haven't grown up. Because we have no file folders for this stuff. And why? Because we've gone to Sunday school all our lives. We've gone to church where everything's tied in nice little bows. And we're slaying our giants and everything's happy. And then all of a sudden you turn to the page that God kills people. But doesn't kill Judah. And we have no answer. We have no answer. The reason why we don't tell these stories to our kids is because it's complicated. It's in-depth. It's not something we might have the maturity to deal with or, or to be able to answer the questions that are provoked. And this is also the reason why some story, stories in the Bible might not be good to share even among adults. It's not that they're not there. It's not that you're trying to do God a PR favor and hide his bad mistakes or anything like this. But it's actually because we don't know what to do with them. So there's many stories that I read to my daughters, and, or many times when I'm reading to my daughters, and I hit a story, and I'm like, and we're going to move on to the next chapter. And their question is, what happened? And I'm like, we'll talk about this in a few years. And then I've had arguments with Christians who are like, you can't bridle the word of God and you need to share it all with your children because they need to know the truth. They do. The same way that they need to hear about sex when they're mature enough to understand what the flip I'm talking about. But if I do it too early, guess what, I'm, guess what I do? I confuse them. I bring in things that will break their hearts and their minds towards a God that I still claim and still can prove to be good and faithful and just and holy and righteous. Can I explain it with this story? No. 
I'm afraid I can't. Will I be able to someday? Maybe. I don't know. I wrestle with these things. But the one thing that I'm not willing to do is be so fake about my Christian faith that I, I simply give you an answer that makes my conscience feel good. I can't do it. I can't do it. I got to look at the story and go, that's some weird stuff right there. And we don't have answers. And they're hard things, okay? So, doesn't mean you shouldn't seek the answer. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't seek people who have given more thought to it than I have. Uh, but it means that if you don't have an answer and you're dealing with your children or you're dealing with skeptics or you're dealing with people that are confused about things, don't just give them an answer that makes you feel better, okay? Wrestle with it. Wrestle with it. Why does God find it just to kill these two other young men because of their actions, but he lets Judah sleep with or prostitute himself or her, right, and have children. Why does he do this? And is the answer just as simple as, well, it was to further the line and he didn't actually sleep with a prostitute? doesn't matter. That's what he thought he was doing. Why is he not reprimanded? Why is he not corrected? These are things that we should wrestle with, okay? So it provides valuable insight into historical context and intricacies of characters and lives, but... It becomes very, very challenging for explaining these kinds of things to immature minds, okay? So the conclusion of Genesis 38 reveals a surprising, I think, and significant connection to Jesus' lineage. And that is, after the intricacies of this unconventional story of Tamar, it becomes evident that the line of Judah, through whom Tamar bore twins, Perez and Zerah, Perez being the one, right, continues to play a crucial role that unfolds this narrative of God's redemptive plan. In Matthew's genealogy in the New Testament, it traces the ancestry of Jesus, and it, and it interestingly enough, includes the names of both Perez and Zerah, which is Curious for a, for a genealogy, because it could only come through one of those, right? And so the sons who were born to Tamar, uh, through an interaction with her father-in-law, okay? So think about who Jesus comes through. Just throwing this out. This kind of Kentucky relationship, okay? So, sorry, sorry. Anyway, so, so this, this inclusion, right, highlights, I think, God's ability to work through unexpected circumstances, and individuals to bring about his ultimate purpose. It doesn't mean we're okay with it. It's worth noting that God not only doesn't shy away from these obscure stories. Right? How many of you would have re uh, removed this from the Bible? You're like, this is weird. I don't want this here. He not only puts it there, but in Matthew's genealogy, he restates it so you can go back and go, what the heck? Right? He's not afraid of this. Why is he not afraid of this? Because clearly he doesn't think like we think. We're always looking at this stuff going, oh my gosh, Lord, what did you do, right? And he's going, what? I did exactly what I was planning to do. And we're all going, well, we don't get it, right? It's fine. It's worth noting that God doesn't just shy away, but he actually repeats these things and even highlights them. The story of Tamar serves as a reminder that God's plan for redemption 
is not confined to human limitations or even cultural norms. He uses those. He judges some of them. He accepts others, right? Who knows? Tamar's role in the genealogy of Jesus underscores, I think, the depth of God's grace and his sovereign ability to use even the most complex and imperfect situations to bring about his great purposes. So if I was to ask a show of hands, how many of you, and I'm not asking you to raise your hands, but I'm saying if I was to ask how many of you come from the most obscure family situations, things you're not proud of, I would guess many people would raise their hands. And God still looks at that and says, yep, and I'm still in control. And I'm still using it. And it's weird. And so are you. But I love you. Right? And I'm working inside of this. So just keep that in mind because that can be somewhat of an answer in this, right? So in a strange way, uh, this story is foreshadowing the inclusive and transformative nature of Christ's ministry because he reaches to all who seek him. Doesn't matter your family background, doesn't matter how broken things have been, doesn't matter how wicked your daddy was or how broken your mama was. He is, he loves people and he is on a mission to save them, okay? So that is the, that is the best I'm ever going to be able to do on a Genesis 38 uh, message because it's weird, okay? And I told you guys repeatedly, I take these obscure stories upon myself because I didn't want to saddle Dylan with this next week, right? And he's happy. <laughs> he's happy because he was, he was ready to hurt me, right? You know, so, so it's very weird. But now we get to move to another weird story. This one, not as Jerry Springer, but... Still strange, just the same, right? So Genesis 39 continues the narrative of Joseph. Why we took that break for Judah, it's fascinating. Who knows? But it's there, right? Now we go back to Joseph, where we started last week, who, as Jacob taught, has been sold into slavery by his brothers, and he finds himself in the household of an Egyptian named Potiphar, where he quickly gains favor due to his diligence, due to his integrity, and however, in, in the midst of that, he still faces tests of his character when Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. Now, how many of you think that if you just do good and you walk upright and you're full of integrity, bad stuff will just slide right off you? It's not true. It doesn't, right? It's going to stick sometimes because false accusations stick, right? I love to say this to people who want to become leadership in church. They, they, they say, what, what are the requirements of leadership in church? And we often go to the scriptures and say things like, you, you must be above reproach. And people are like, okay, so what does that mean? And I make sure to state to people, being above reproach does not mean reproach will not come. It means a pro reproach will not stick. Does that make sense? And it doesn't mean it won't stick for a small period of time. It means over the whole story, it will not stick. It will fall to the side, okay? So, but that becomes hard. And in Joseph's story, it sticks with him for quite some time. As a matter of fact, he got sold into slavery, and that sticks with him for a very long period of time, okay? So he's in Potiphar's house, and he's a man of integrity. He's serving well. He's faithful to Potiphar, but Potiphar's wife thinks he's a good-looking boy, and so she tries to seduce him. Joseph resolutely refuses every advance this woman gives and declares that he can't betray the trust of Potiphar uh, because Potiphar has placed all of his trust in him. Despite her persistent efforts, Joseph is not moving. How many of you want to be that guy? 
How many of you want to be that gal? You just don't want to move when things test you, right? So Joseph is this guy, and he honors both God's commandments and the integrity that he has cultivated. Potiphar's wife, though, is furious. So she falsely accuses Joseph of wrongdoing, and this leads to imprisonment. Imprisonment. He did nothing wrong. He did everything right. He gets to go to jail. How many of you look at that and go, where's God now? Like, God, why don't you stop this? God, why didn't you judge Judah? God, why did you judge Ur? God, why won't you rescue Joseph? Why in the world would you allow him to be sold into slavery? Do you ever ask these questions? You should. You should. They're hard questions, right? So the chapter provides uh, powerful a powerful illustration of integrity, a quality that is often defined as adhering to moral principles and doing what is right, even when it's difficult or unpopular. I think the modern phrase, and and it may have been C.S. Lewis who said it, something like doing what is right even when no one is looking. And that's wonderful, but it's a very short definition of integrity, right? The, the answer to integrity is much deeper. Joseph's unwavering commitment to his values, even in the face of temptation and unjust consequences, exemplify what true integrity is. So he refuses to compromise his belief uh, or betray the trust in those around him, even Potiphar, who's an Egyptian. He doesn't care. He wants to be an upright man. Integrity is not merely about avoiding wrongdoing. So please understand this, church. You just, not, you just keeping your nose clean is not you being a person of integrity. It's about consistently living according to your design. Hear me out, because you're image bearers. Integrity is defined as the state of being whole and undivided. It's most likely not the definition you remember hearing, right? But the state of being whole and undivided. Analogizing integrity uh, to a chair would would help uh, and provide, I think, a vivid illustration. So imagine this chair that I'm sitting on is a symbol of a person's character. Let's just say that it's my character, I hope, right? So the legs of the chair represent core principles and core values. And what do those core principles and values do? They hold me up. You guys got it, right? Okay, so they hold me up. The, The seat of the chair, right, is something different. But each leg has to be sturdy. Each leg has to be balanced. Each leg has to be aligned with the others in order to provide any kind of stability. Now, the seat is a different matter, right? The seat represents the actions or the decisions that I make as a person. And so just as the seat rests upon the legs, which are what? Principles and values. So my actions rest upon principles and values, okay? So just as the seat rests upon the legs, my actions are things that must, rep- must rest upon uh, precepts, on, on values that I have, okay? So it's not just mere, uh, mere righteousness or doing good, right? It is something about the way I am. It has, to, it has to uphold me. It has to be something solid. It means ensuring that every action that I take Every time this seat is used, it aligns with the legs underneath. If I try to align with one of these legs, my grandpa used to yell at me all the time for this because I love to rock back in my chair, right? 
And there was this one Thanksgiving, and I'm still bitter about it and still wounded, and it's okay. I'll deal with it in therapy someday. But anyway, so I was sitting in my chair like this on Thanksgiving, and my grandpa was a very, um, very matter-of-fact individual, and he said, you're not to lean back in your chair. And I did it again, and he snapped his fingers, and I sat down, and he said, and you're no longer here at Thanksgiving. Sit down. And I went to the couch, and I didn't get to eat. I, it was like, bye-bye. I was banished, right? So, so I'm just sharing with you my bitterness. Anyway, so, um, so we do that. But here's the deal. If I'm in this, my grandpa knows something. My grandpa knows that a small movement can knock this out from under me. But if I have all of my principles under me, no matter how I sit, it's good, right? No matter what action I take. Does this make sense to you? Right? No matter what action I take, the principles are there to hold me up. And this is who Joseph is. Uh, he is a person of integrity. He is a person, as we defined above, he is a person that is complete. He has a strong set of actions that are upheld by his principles. This is what it means to be a person of integrity. So Joseph is, uh, Joseph's example challenges us to examine each and every one of our lives, considering how we navigate challenges. So if we're falsely accused, what are we going to do? Here's a principle for you. Love those who persecute you and pray for those who hate you. I hate that principle. <laughs> right? Right? Tough. That's the principle you're supposed to live by. Right? You're supposed to love even your enemy. There's another dumb one. Got to do it. Right? Listen, I'm just, I'm being candid with you. I'm, I'm being honest with you because the truth is there are days when we're called to these things and every one of us goes, I don't like this. Right? It's so amazing that, that David walked around and he said, I delight in the law of the Lord and my heart is, I want to have your heart, David. I want to delight in that law. But Tuesday comes and I'm like, mm, loving people. It's kind of hard. Right? Right? It's easy to love people when they love you back. It's easy to love people when they're lovable. But it's not when they falsely accuse you, right? It's not when they put you in prison for something you didn't do, okay? So true integrity is revealed not only when it's convenient, <laughs> but especially when we're faced with adversity. And so Joseph's story reminds us that integrity is the hallmark of character, right? It withstands the tests of time. It withstands circumstances. It withstands uh, everything that comes our way, guiding us to live uh, what we would call an authentic and honorable life in God's eyes. So when confronted with temptation, what does Joseph do? He doesn't merely resist, what else does he do? He flees from it. I want you guys to start understanding the principles that I share here because this is going to help you stand on your principles or sit on your principles rather and your actions to follow suit, okay? Joseph doesn't merely resist. He flees from the situation. He understands the importance of guarding his heart and making choices that honor God. So his actions actually remind us of something the Apostle Paul shares with us in 1 Corinthians 10.13. If you're a note taker, write that down. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, how many of you know that's coming? When you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. That's powerful. He'll provide you a way out so that you can run. 
so that you can get away from the circumstance. Don't try to uh, strong arm temptation. Just run. Amen? Just run. It's so fascinating. One of the principles that we talk about in jiu-jitsu all the time is that is that the, the goal in any kind of self-defense is not actually to go beating people up. Did you know that? <laughs> what a pity. Anyway, right? The, <laughs> the, obje- the objective, if you can, first, is to get out of dodge, right? Get up and run. If you can get up and run, if you can avoid conflict, avoid conflict, right? If you can't, you need to be prepared so that somebody doesn't kill you. But the objective is to actually get out of the conflict. It's the same thing when it comes to temptation. The objective is to get out of the temptation, get out of the conflict. Most of us continue to fall within the same temptation or fall to the same temptation over and over and over because we fail to remove ourselves from the equation. And God's going, I bought you a bus ticket. Go. And we're like, nah, I got this. I got this. It's, here's what integrity is. It means resisting against that. You have the wrong definition of integrity. Get out of dodge. Let your actions adhere to your principles, and that sometimes means run, okay? So Joseph's unwavering commitment to his values speaks volumes about his character. It sets up, I think, an inspiring example for us as we battle temptation, and every one of us battles temptation. So just as he fled from sin, we can flee from sin. As he fled from snares, we can flee from snares. We can run from this, okay? Number two, Joseph's story takes on another unexpected twist when his integrity lands him in prison, uh, and this is the undeserved consequences of doing what is right. The prison becomes this kind of, uh, uh, becomes a a fiery furnace. It becomes a, a, a crucible, if you will, in which his faith becomes tested. And yet, even in that dark place, Joseph is shining through with wisdom. Joseph is shining through with leadership. Joseph is shining through with compassion and love. He's doing all of this in the midst of these hard times. I remember uh, the scripture talking about the apostles being imprisoned for their faith and they're singing songs and they're rejoicing in the midst of adversity and knowing that God is in control. How many of you ready to do that? It's like, that's hard. I'm not sure I'd be singing in that situation. Joseph's doing this. He's not just in prison, falsely accused, but he's in prison and he's helping people around him and he's leading people around him. Joseph's experience resonates with uh, what the Apostle Paul declares in Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. I love that last line of Romans 8, 28. Because those who are called according to his purpose means those whose actions match their principles. We are called according to his purpose. We're called to do as he says. Okay? Do you understand that? So this is what we're all doing. And God says he works all things together for the good of those kinds of people. So while Joseph may have felt abandoned and forgotten, God was orchestrating events, actually, to fulfill his purpose. And so like Joseph, we can find comfort in the truth that God is using our trials. Yes, whatever you're going through, God is using that. Some of the things he's using it for might just be to teach you to trust him more. He might be doing something extraordinary like he did with Joseph. I don't know. But I know that he is using it because God works all things together for the good. He doesn't work some things. 
He doesn't only work the good things. He doesn't only work the bad things. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And in that, uh, in that um, trial and in that shaping, he's molding us and he is making something better for us. C.S. Lewis once said that God allows us to experience the low points of life in order to teach us lessons we could not learn any other way. How many of you find that to be terribly encouraging? You're like, thanks, Lord. Anyway, right? But, that, but the point is still the same, right? He, he allows us to experience those low points, and then we get to learn how to thrive in other areas. Just as Joseph's time in prison prepared him for a role of influence, our own suffering can help equip us for whatever God has for us. So uh, there's, there's this kind of cultural uh, way today where people are, people are YouTube famous. You guys know this, right? They're the people who are social media famous or YouTube famous or whatever. And, and there's, a, there's a problem with how the next generation is trying to observe this because the next generation comes up and when they're asked what they want to do with their life or what they want to be, they will literally say things like, I want to be YouTube famous, right? But what is really amazing is that the large majority of these people that gain a following on YouTube are not people who just won the lottery, if you will. Okay, these are people who have an area of expertise or an area where they love doing what they do, and they do it faithfully, repetitively, diligently for long periods of time, and then at some point, people start following and liking them, and all of a sudden, they're successful, okay? I think about people like uh, Jordan Peterson, or I think of people, uh, about people like Andrew Huberman. These guys, they, they look to the outside observer. They look like just superstars, and they're famous, and they started a YouTube channel, and everybody listens to them. No, they were teachers and professors and workers for eons of time, investing in their career, and then finally, it came about that there was fruit from their life, right, in, in, in something there. This is the same way in which uh, our, um, our lives will produce something at, at time. What you have to do with character, what you have to do with integrity is be faithful to live according to your principles and to act according to your principles. Over time, people will see it. Over time, will people will see it. If God is working something in you, guess what it's going to take? All the hard stuff. And guess what? That hard stuff is what makes you credible to listen to when you're talking about how to do life. Don't just try to wing it. Don't just try to act like an expert and tell everybody your stupid opinions and your ideas. Gain some wisdom and then you'll have something worth listening to. Can I get an amen? Are you all like, you just crazy, man, right? This is what we need to do. We need to put in faithful, diligent time so that what we, what we bring to the table is worth listening to. Joseph went through it and God used it. What we try to do is avoid the going through it, and we're like, God, use me. He's like, you don't know anything. You don't know anything. What am I using? Right? So, so trust the process. Trust that God is actually working, even in the hard stuff, something in your life. Number three, uh, revelation of divine providence. Years later, Joseph reveals his true identity to his brothers, right? And uh, we witness this profound moment of revelation and reconciliation. Through tears and through forgiveness, Joseph acknowledges God's sovereign hand at work in the weirdness, right? It's at this point that uh, he recognizes that what his brothers intended for evil, 
God was actually not working, according to the scripture, but intending, which is a hard thing for us to wrestle with. God intended for good. You remember at the beginning I said, why is it that God has Ur killed, but doesn't judge uh, Judah, right? Thank you. Well, he has Ur killed, but he doesn't judge Judah, right? It's, it doesn't seem fair inside of this situation. Guess what else doesn't seem fair? Joseph being sold into slavery, right? And yet now we get to the end of Genesis and God actually says, I intended it. You did what? You intended what? Think about this, guys. There's no small Sunday school answer that's going to give you peace about this. What if the circumstance you're going through, what if the trial and the tribulation and the hard thing you're going through was actually God's plan? How many of you pray for God's will? How many of you want that to be good all the time? Because <laughs> you're honest, right? <laughs> right? You're like, yes, I want it to be good. How many of you like it when you pray for God's will and he goes, okay, buckle in, hell's coming. Right, Denise? Right? Like, I want your will, Lord. But now I got to sit and watch my daughter in a hospital on the verge of death. I don't like this plan anymore, Lord. I don't like this plan anymore. Lord, I want to be used by you. Okay? I'm going to take your child. What? Does that make sense? If you've lived any length of time, you know it happens. And yet we still try to give ourselves Sunday school answers. Give ourselves answers that make us feel warm and fuzzy. And yet there's people out there and people in this very room right now that have walked through literal hell. And God was working it. Why? Because he's always working. And he's always teaching. And he's always shaping. And he's always molding. Are you okay with that? Because this is a bigger view of God and it's the one you need to understand, the one you need to hold. Even though he may slay me, the psalmist says, yet I will serve him. You ready? You ready? We can go back to Joel Olstein. All you have to do is name it and claim it. Everything will be peachy. Until it's not. God is working, church. God is working. So. So Joseph learns in this forgiveness, in this love, in this, in this uh, restoration with his brothers, he re realizes that God intends this for good. This revelation echoes the truth that is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. In him we also are chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And the people writing this, the one writing this, is in prison or dealing with, uh, dealing with persecution for his faith. And he says, you know what? We were the first to put our hope in, in Jesus so that we might be the praise of his glory. We face tribulation and we're like, God sucks. No. God is to be praised. God is to be honored. God is to be... Uh, to be promoted and declared to all the world. Joseph's journey from betrayal to blessing exemplifies God's redemptive power to transform even the most challenging circumstances into instruments of his divine purpose. I promise I'm wrapping it up soon. 
Number four, Joseph's story culminates in a heartwarming scene of forgiveness and reconciliation with his brothers despite their past betrayal. Joseph extends grace and love, embodies the very essence of Christ's teaching. This act of forgiveness not only restores broken relationships, but it also paves the way for healing and unity within the family. So the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3.13 urges us to bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And the people that seem to be the worst at forgiving and the worst at bearing with one another today are the very people this instruction was given to. We've got to do better, church. We've got to do better. We interpret this verse to say, bear with them as long as you want to bear with them. And after that, give them the left foot of fellowship. Bear with them as long as you desire to bear with them. But when they become too hard to handle, when they become toxic to you, write them off in the name of Jesus. It's nonsense, church. It has no place in God's church. Joseph's ability to forgive let me talk about, I'm going to get on a soapbox here, I'm sorry. Let's talk about toxicity and all of this nonsense, okay? I believe in boundaries, and I believe that those things, uh, for me, I believe that I can come to those boundaries in an intuitive fashion. In that intuitive fashion, I don't always know how to explain how I set boundaries, but I will, I will roughly say that it is based on principles that I walk in every day, okay? That's what I try to do. Not saying I'm perfect. But here's, here's the challenge when it comes to the modern definition of toxicity and the modern, modern uh, kind of method of just putting people out of your life because they're challenging and hard to deal with. How many of you would say that the definition of toxic would be, would be brothers who sell you into slavery? How many of you would say the definition of toxic would be, my brother sold me to a bunch of Egyptians? I would say that's pretty toxic, right? Here's what we do. Here's what we do. Um, this person constantly tells me that this way of my living, this choice that I make in my living, is not according to God's will. I think that person's toxic, therefore I've blocked them and I've rid them of my life. You're a wimp. Can you hear me? You are a wimp. My gosh. Ain't nobody sold you into slavery yet. But this is our way of doing things, church, and it's really, really crazy. And I know that's going to get me emails and frustration. But listen, boundaries are fine. Boundaries are fine. But, but there is something we have to be much more careful with, uh, with how we establish these things. Integrity matters in this. We have principles and we have actions that we take. Make sure your actions line up with your principles. That's what I'm telling you, okay? Otherwise, you're just... You're just finding a way not to love people, and it's not good. Joseph's ability to forgive, rooted in his understanding of God's redemptive plan, serves as the example, the reminder for us in our life. Yes, Lewis beautifully captured the essence of forgiveness in, in what he said. He said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. But you want to know why we, we're challenged by this? Because although we will readily raise our hand and say, I'm a sinner saved by grace, what we really mean is, I'm not that bad. I'm a sinner, but uh, not really, right? 
Not like that guy's a sinner. God has forgiven the inexcusable in every single person in this room. Did you know that? And guess what that, guess what that calls us to? To forgive the inexcusable in others. Even your brother's selling you into slavery. I hope my brother's not listening. But anyway, right, right, so, so, right, so we're supposed to do this. Just as Joseph forgave his brothers, we can extend forgiveness. We can, and, and extending forgiveness doesn't always mean put yourself back into the circumstance, but it does mean actually forgive them and love them and care for them and be there for them. All of those pieces are part of forgiveness. Last piece, Joseph's unwavering faith and steadfast, uh, steadfastness throughout his trials earn him uh, a place in what we call the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. His journey from, uh, from his pit, if you will, to a grand purpose serves as an enduring testimony to the extraordinary destiny that often emerges, often emerges, uh, from ordinary lives marked by hardship and perseverance. I've got too many uh, people's personal testimonies floating through my head, but I would recommend that you get to know the people in this very room because you will hear some adversity stories that you would never have thought possible and how people overcame them. C.S. Lewis again said, hardships often prepare ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. Reflect, uh, reflect the profound truth that God's hand is actually at work in the midst of all of our challenges. This is what we're supposed to do. Okay, so conclusion. As we delve into the stories that are found in Genesis 38 and the Jerry Springer nature and then 39 and the false accusations and the challenges, we actually witness um, divine providence. We witness resilience, forgiveness. Uh, but in the end, we actually, we actually are witnessing divine purpose, divine purpose, the overarching story, and it's important. Through Joseph's journey, we are reminded that God's plan weaves through every moment of our life, and it propels us from these dark places, from these pits, right, of temptation, of suffering, of whatever, to a place of purpose and restoration in our relationships and in every aspect of life. Just as, just as Joseph's legacy of faithfulness endures, ours can as well, if we will do what? Live by integrity. Live by our principles and act according to them. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the lessons that you teach us. I'm praying, Lord, that you would help each heart and each mind in this building be okay with the complexities that we find in your word. Be okay with um, questions that can't be readily answered. Be okay with maybe the pictures of you that we're not, ready to, we're not ready to wrestle with. Allow us a peace that still knows that you are good and you are faithful and that you are working all things together for the good of those who will walk according to integrity, who will uh, walk according to your purpose and your plan. Lord, let us be more like Joseph. Let us endure the trials and the challenges of life knowing very well that you are orchestrating good out of everything. 
Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name.